Jesus said the church is to be a house of prayer. In order to be a house of prayer, you have to pray. You read the book of Acts, you find the early church prayed often. They gathered together and they prayed. You find it all throughout the book. In Acts 1, they needed to find out someone who could replace Judas. It's one of the twelve. And so they gathered and they prayed for wisdom. In Acts 2, they're praying as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. Later in Acts 2, after the day of Pentecost has fully come and have moved on beyond that, the Bible says they devoted themselves to prayer. The apostles healed a lame man in Acts 3, but they were on the way to the temple to pray as they did that. They were arrested for healing the lame man and told to preach no more in the name of Jesus. And as soon as they were released, they gathered the church together and they prayed. That's just the first four chapters. We could go on and on through Acts and we would find the church gathered together and they prayed. This was a major theme in the book of Acts. One of the reasons the early church turned the world upside down. If our church is to be a house of prayer, as Jesus said, and as the early church modeled, then we must have times where we gather together and we just pray. Now, since 2017, we have usually dedicated the first Wednesday of the month uh, to gather together for the express purpose of prayer. Each month is different in its focus. Its prayer service is different in its focus and its format, but they are primarily prayer services. 2018, we added prayer, like in between, at every service we have, and a specific prayer ministry available at the end of Sunday morning services. 2016, we started having this service on Sunday morning, the first Sunday of the year, being a a prayer service where we would gather and we would have a concert of prayer. So we're moving on in 2020, doing the same things regarding prayer, looking for more opportunities for us to gather and pray. Because truly, if our church is going to be a beacon of hope in this community, that beacon of hope will only come as we pray and as God moves in our midst. Now, one of the best books of prayer I ever read gave a pattern for prayer called ACTS, based on the acronym ACTS. It was adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It was just a way to make sure you prayed all that needed to be prayed when you prayed. So for our service today, we're going to go through these acts of prayer together. If you've never been here for this, what we're going to do is we'll have a brief explanation of each of the acts of prayer We will have a a time where we pray and that time of prayer will be focused on that act of prayer. And then when we're through praying, we will have a time where we sing and we worship the Lord in song. And then we'll move on to the next one. So, our first act of prayer is adoration. Adoration is an act of worship characterized by love and reverence toward God. It is the kind of attitude shown in this passage. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him. Sing psalms unto Him. Talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. So notice what's going on. There is a giving of thanks, but that's later. They're calling upon the Lord. 
They are declaring the deeds and the acts of the Lord. They are singing and worshiping the Lord. They are talking to one another of the wondrous works of the Lord. They are rejoicing in God's name and who He is and what He's done. So when we, when we adore, when we worship God in prayer, what we're doing is we are recognizing He and He alone is worthy of our worship. It is recognizing that I come to God and He is the worthy one. And I am the one crying out to Him. Now Scripture gives us many reasons why we should adore and worship our great God. God loves me. One of the unfortunate realities of our time is the idea God loves us has almost become a meaningless cliché. It's almost emptied of its power and, and how significant it is. But for you and I, for those of us who know Jesus, this should be a truth that is life changing, motivates us to passionately worship God. The psalm says, praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all you people of the earth, for he loves us with an unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The idea that His love is an unfailing love. In Jeremiah, it's expressed as He has loved us from eternity past into eternity future. From everlasting to everlasting, He has loved us. I mean, that, to me, that, that is just a mind-boggling concept. God loves us. And, and He knows all about us. I mean, do you ever... Do you ever just get amazed that God knows, I mean, everything? Your thoughts, your desires, the stuff that, that you would not tell anyone about. That you're ashamed that that's even a thought in your mind. God knows it. And He still loves you. And nothing you do will ever change that. I mean, that is, that is amazing. Sometimes we sing a song called The Wonder of It All. And the, the chorus says, oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think, God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think, God loves me. Truly, there is not much will transform your life and move you to worship. Truly understanding God's great love for us. Another reason is God forgives us. God forgives us. Think about that. Scripture teaches that we have all sinned. Scripture teaches that that sin earns a wage, and that wage is death. But but probably more importantly, Scripture teaches all sin is ultimately against God. So every time we lie, every time we cheat, every time we steal, every time we lust, every time we do those things, we are we are sinning against the God who loves us. And it would be easy, if God were like me, to hold a grudge. Are there people in your life that sin against you so many times you're, you're done with them? I mean, you don't hate them. You don't want like a car to explode with them in it. But you don't want them to come to your house and watch TV with you either. Right? And it would be easy enough to think, well, God's like me and God would, He's just done with me. 
And yet scripture says that he's not that way. It says blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. New spirit there is no guile. Now it doesn't specifically say worship God because he's forgiven us. But Psalm 51 is one of the Psalms David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. He had sinned against the Lord. He had murdered her husband. He had taken her and forced her to be with him. And then tried to hide it. And yet God forgave him. And so David is writing this psalm of worship. I cannot believe how wonderful and amazing God is, he said. I mean, do you ever really take the time and stop to think about what God has saved you from? And do you read what the Bible says about what death really means? And realize that that would be me. That would be you if not for Jesus. That He has forgiven us despite our sin against Him. That, that should, should motivate us to worship Him. God is with us. One of the great promises God has given to us is He will never leave us nor forsake us. And knowing God is with us has a, has a real impact upon our lives. David says he will bless, he will worship the Lord who has given him counsel. His reigns also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Because He is at my right hand, my heart shall be glad. My glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Knowing God was with him, David wouldn't give up and he wouldn't back up. Knowing God was with him made him glad and made him rejoice. It gave him hope and it caused him to bless the Lord. I mean, God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. As the passage I read at the start of service. He doesn't, we don't come to those places where there's a fire and a flood and the trials. And He doesn't say, can you walk through that and I'll meet you through on the other side. He says, follow me. I'll lead you through here. I'll be with you the whole way. How wonderful is it that our God will never leave us. Should lead us to worship. To know to that. And then God is, is good to us. I, I am. As I get older. I become more amazed at the goodness of God in my life. In, in, my, in my old age. I have realized God has blessed me far beyond my character. So what I mean is, I don't deserve any of the good things God has done for me. If God only blessed me in accordance to my goodness and my worthiness, that would be a sad, sad life for me. God has totally done more for me than I could ever ask or imagine. I could ever earn in two lifetimes. It's true for you too. And knowing how good God has been. It should lead us to worship. The psalmist says. Bless the Lord O my soul. All that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth thine iniquities. Who healeth thine diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so thy youth is renewed 
like the eagles. We could spend a great deal of time talking about all the good things God has done for us in our lives. There are general good things, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But there are very specific things. I mean, things that God did just for us. We could all probably look at our lives and say, in my life, God did this just for me. And since that's true, here's what I want to do. We don't do this often. We give you a chance. Does anybody here want to stand up and tell something good God has done for them recently? Anyone else? So what we're going to do now is have a time of prayer. The next on the ACTS acronym is confession. Now confessing is admitting our sin and failures to God. Growing up, I always had the idea that confessing was just saying, Lord, I sinned. And there's an element of that that that's true. But the Greek word used for confession, it carries with it the idea of saying the same thing or of being of the same mind. So confessing our sin is more than saying, I've sinned. But it is saying the same thing about our sin, God says about our sin. And that's significant. Because God has specific things He says about our sin. For instance, God says our sin is our fault. Which is very different than our culture says. Our culture it is very much a blame culture. Nothing is ever truly our fault, no matter what. There's always a reason why we don't have to take responsibility for our actions. 
But to say, I messed up, but it wasn't my fault, that's not confessing. God says, and, and Scripture, we could look at place after place where Scripture says our sin is our fault. So I have to say, if I'm going to confess my sin, God, I sinned, and it was my fault. God also says my sin is serious. And again, this is very different than, than what our culture says. Our culture is always doing what it can to minimize the severity of sin. Very few people who are caught in sin actually say, I sinned. What did they do? They made a mistake. They made a bad choice. They, they, they did not act wisely. But all of that falls far short of saying, I sinned. That my sin is serious. And yet God says, your sin and mine is serious. And thirdly, God says, my sin, your sin, is against Him. Again, that's a huge, huge thing. When David wrote the 51st Psalm, he said in that Psalm, Against you and you alone have I sinned, O God, and done what is wrong in your sight. Now, David, he had a wife, and he cheated on his wife. He not only cheated on his wife, he had a woman brought from her house to his house to sleep with him. But he was the king. It's not like she could say no. Then when she became pregnant, rather than owning it at that point, he calls her husband to come back and tries to get him to sleep with his wife so that it would cover it up and be Uriah's child. When Uriah wouldn't do that, David has Uriah carry a note back to Joab the general saying, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then have everyone abandon him and leave him to die. Who all did David sin against in that? He sinned against his wife. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his general. Uriah was not just a soldier. He was one of David's mighty men. And he sinned against his mighty men who had covenanted their lives to him. And yet he said, against you, O God, have I sinned. God is the lawgiver, the rule maker. Every time we violate God's law, we sin against God. So if I'm going to confess my sin, I can't say, yes, I made a poor choice and I could have acted more wisely, but if it wasn't for this person over here, I wouldn't have done that. And compared to what this person over here does, it's not that big of a deal anyway. Instead, I have to say I sinned and it was all my fault. And this sin, it is grievous in your sight, O oh God. And I have sinned against you. If we aren't willing to say that about our sin, we are not confessing our sin. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there are two broad categories of sin. right? There are sins of commission. This is what we're most familiar with. This is doing what God has said not to do. Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. God has said, thou shalt not. And we say, oh, yes, I shall. I will do what I want to do. That is a sin of commission. There are also sins of omission. And this is not doing something we know we're supposed to do. James says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, 
To him it is sin. Now both are equal. Both are sins against God. Both are serious. Both are our fault. Both must be confessed. Now, genuine confession involves repentance. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. Right? Repentance is more than, again than saying, I've sinned. Repentance is that repentance, that, that brokenness over my sin leads me to change. When John the Baptist came preaching repentance, some of the religious leaders came and they wanted to be baptized by him to show that they were repenting. And look at what he said to them. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. He said, don't just tell me you're sorry. Let's see it in your life. If you truly repented, there'll be evidence that you're different. And this evidence, this Fruit is preceded by sorrow for sin. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are not the same things. Worldly sorrow is when we're sorry we got caught. Worldly sorrow is when there are consequences for our sin we don't like. Worldly sorrow is because we're going to be punished for what we've done. Godly sorrow is not like that. If we are genuinely repenting, if there is a godly sorrow, we are sorry whether anyone ever knows about the sin or not. We are sorry whether there are any negative consequences for that sin or not. We're sorry whether there's any suffering or any consequences that we experience. We're sorry that we have sinned against the God who loves us. We're sorry we have taken pleasure in that which sent Jesus to the cross. That is a godly sorrow. And the promise given to those who repent and confess is that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice... That faithfulness, that justice, that forgiveness, it only comes if we confess. If I'm not willing to take responsibility, I'm not confessing. I'll receive no forgiveness. If I'm not acknowledging the severity of my sin, I'm not confessing. I'll receive no forgiveness. If I'm not acknowledging my sin was against God, I'm not confessing and I'll receive no forgiveness. If we want God to be faithful to us, to be just to us, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we must come to God and say, it is my fault. I have sinned against you. And this sin, it is serious. So what we're going to do is have a time of confessing, prayer confessing. We're going to come to the altar. All that can or all that want to eat and pray where you are. We're going to spend time confessing sin in our life. And as you do, here's a prayer to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me to the way everlasting. Ask God to search our hearts. To see if there's anything in our lives that is not pleasing to Him. 
And if there is, confess it, forsake it, and move on. All right, I ask all that would to come to the altars to pray. Pray you are when we're all through, we'll move on. The next act of prayer is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is just what it sounds like. It is giving thanks to God for all He has done in our lives. Now the Bible is clear about the importance of thanksgiving. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians that our lives are to overflow with thanksgiving. And then he writes in Thessalonians that in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I always want to point out in this verse, Paul does not say be thankful for everything. That's not the point of what he's saying. What he's saying is in everything give thanks and that this is always God's will. Which that's a big thing, right? I mean, a lot of times we talk about what is God's will for my life. Well, one thing that is always God's will is that we be thankful. And and this is despite the circumstances of our life. This isn't be thankful when life is grand and, and don't worry about it so much when life kind of stinks. Instead, we are to be thankful in all circumstances because this is always God's will for us in Christ Jesus. That's a big ask, to always be thankful. I think the key to that, and I've talked about this before, so I'll move quickly. But the key to that is to look for something that's unchanging. To look for something bigger than our circumstances, bigger than this world, right? So if, if my, I'm thankful and it's based upon the fact that our world is largely at peace, then right now I'm in deep anxiety. If I'm thankful and, and I have this sort of peace because you know, my political party is in power, then the collection season is going to leave me with deep anxiety and a lack of gratitude depending on how it turns out. We have to find something that transcends culture, that transcends our circumstances, that doesn't change. And the only thing that really fits the bill is Jesus. So when we think about Jesus, we can always find a reason to be thankful. Right, we can think about this in terms of the past, the present, and the future. Right, in, in the past, Jesus has died for us. I mean, that's not going to change. And, and I know as we hear about that so much that it's easy for us to lose the, the amazement, the wow, the fact Jesus died for us. But I think periodically we ought to read Isaiah 53. We ought to read the, the crucifixion account from Matthew and Mark and Luke. And we ought to, to study about what happened when someone was crucified. So that we can understand the horrors of what, went, what Jesus went through and understand that was just for us. I mean, He didn't deserve it. He didn't have to do it. It was His choice on our behalf. So... My sins are forgiven because Jesus died. I can always be thankful for that. Jesus saved me. There was a point in time in my life where the death and the resurrection of Christ went beyond being theoretical to practical. To where I went from knowing it in a Sunday school sort of way to knowing it in a personal way that Jesus saved me on this day. Nothing changes that. I can always be thankful. And then... Even beyond that, I can look at stuff Jesus has done for me in the past. I have, I have a book that has prayers that Jesus has answered for me specifically. I can go back through that and I can find the red check marks and the date. And I will know on that day, Jesus answered a prayer for me exactly the way I prayed it. 
And there are many other things. We can look at the past and say, here's what Jesus has done. And though my circumstances right now stink, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in the past. We can look in the present, too, because there are things Jesus is doing in our present, no matter the circumstances. Now, this looking in the present, I think, is more difficult at times. The more difficult our circumstances, the more difficult it is to see Jesus at work. But he's always at work. I mean, we can look at the promises. I I will never leave you nor forsake you. We've talked about that. Jesus is with us even in the hard times of life. But how many times in difficult circumstances do things happen that seem to be coincidences? And those things are really not a coincidence, but it's God at work. I've mentioned before when when Lizzie was born and, and began to take a downturn. And we knew she was going to be transferred to Amarillo, to the NICU up there, not knowing what was going on. I came to the church to pray. And I had to go into my office to grab something. And as I grabbed something, went into my office to grab something, somebody had written a card. And all they wrote was Jeremiah 29, 11. They slipped the card underneath the door. Grabbed the card. Went on. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11, if you don't know, says, For I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, plans to, to bless you and to prosper you, not to harm you. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Somebody did that. And then we get to the NICU. And they put Lizzie in a room and they put her underneath a picture of a mom rocking her baby and a Bible verse underneath that picture was Jeremiah 29, 11. Now I could say, well, that's just a coincidence. I say, man, my God is awesome. In, in the worst time of my life, he was there. But also with, with Lizzie, he, I was reading my Bible before we went to the hospital one day in Oklahoma City. And, and I was reading in Mark And this guy comes to Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And as he's waiting to talk to Jesus, somebody comes to him and says, don't bother the teacher, your daughter's dead. The Bible says, Jesus, hearing the report, said, do not be afraid, just trust in me. It was just my Bible reading, I didn't think much about it. We we get to the NICU, doctor comes to us and she says, your baby has this. She's going to deteriorate rapidly before you. You'll watch her die by the time she's five. It'll be a painful death, hard for you to watch. Have a good day. And, and she walked out, and Kelly and I were just like, oh, wow. And I looked at her, and I said, hearing their report, Jesus said, not be afraid, only believe. For the next two months, we lived and we died by that verse. Coincidence that I just happened to read that verse on that day, or, or, or my God at work. In those present circumstances. And sometimes it's not even in big things. I can think last year I was, I read in Acts 16 that they were ministering to the Lord in prayer. And I said, I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I've read that passage, I don't know how many times, I have no idea what it means to minister to the Lord. I wish I, I could find something that would tell. Next morning I go to the gym, I open up my iTunes, and there's a sermon that pops up from one of my favorite preachers, ministering to the Lord. I mean, how, how cool is that, right? I mean, what a, what a minor thing that my God heard and cared about and gave me an answer to in that way. That's something I can be thankful for. And in the future, I've got to move on. Jesus has promised to work all things for our good and for His glory. He, he, there is something good going to come out of our bad. He, he will wrap it up somehow. He is going to take us to be with Him. We will be in heaven. There there will be coming a day where we are somewhere where there is no sorrow, no pain, no hurting. All of this stuff will pass away. This isn't the end. 
So there's always, always a reason that we can be thankful if we look at Jesus. I mean, the Bible says every good and every perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of life, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. How many of God's good gifts do we take for granted? Because what that says is if I have anything good in my life, it's from God. If we had time, we could go through the scripture and see how that would play out. Like in Deuteronomy, it teaches that if you have the ability to create wealth, that's a gift from God. So do you have a, a gift or a talent or ability that allows you to have a job where you can make money and provide for your family? Bless God for that. He gave you that gift. The Bible says our lives and our breaths are in His hand. Did you wake up alive and healthy this morning? Bless God for that. That is a, a good gift that God has given you. Everybody didn't wake up alive and healthy this morning. Do you have a spouse who loves you? Children? Do you have family? Are you able to come to church and worship without fear of the secret police coming in and taking us off to prison? Our, our lives... Especially our lives as Americans are filled with so much prosperity and so much good that comes to us straight from the hand of the Lord. When we say there is nothing good in our lives, and, and, and I don't want to be hateful and harsh here, but I do want to be straight. When we say there is nothing good or thank, thankful worthy in my life, all we're doing is saying I am so spoiled that the good things I take for granted don't count for diddly squat. There is always something to be thankful for. So we're going to have a time and have a prayer of thanksgiving. And I'm going to ask if Evelyn would, if you would. Last on the list is supplication. Supplication is most what we're most familiar with in prayer, asking God to do something on our behalf. Uh, with supplication, I, I want to point out, I think it's important to know supplication, asking God to do things. This is an important part of prayer. I, I've had people talk to me, say it just felt like they were being selfish and they didn't want to ask or it was too small. None of that's a biblical attitude. Right? None of that is, is actually what we find in Scripture. In, in Scripture... The Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask that the Lord would give us this day our daily bread. Peter writes that we're to cast all of our cares upon the Lord for He cares for us. We are invited over and over again in Scripture to pray, to call upon the Lord, to ask Him to do things on our behalf. So we always want this to be a part of it because God intends for it to be that way. Now there are several truths about prayer we need to know. Turn to Matthew 7. You look at familiar passages, cover it really, really quickly. That's uh, page 738 if you have a pew Bible. And I'm just going to read verses 7 through 11. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth to him that knocketh it shall be opened. What man is there of you? Whom his son asks bread, will he give a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them which ask Him? So just four quick truths, four or five quick truths 
about prayer we should see in this verse. One, pray actively. But notice the words Jesus uses, ask, seek, knock. Right? These are action words. Uh, and it should, to me it seems, that they get more intense. Right, So asking is not quite as active as seeking. Seeking not quite as active as knocking. And if there's a progression of intensity depending on the amount of need we have. Prayer is not a, a passive thing. Right? Prayer is something that we are active, we are involved in, that we do regularly. I think part of the picture is that if we only pray half-heartedly once or twice a week, we probably should not expect much from the Lord. Right? That this is an active, intense thing we're doing as we pray. We're also supposed to pray persistently. Now, I have a King James Bible, and it's not as evident here. If you have a New Living Translation, it is very noticeable there. In the New Living Translation, it says, Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And the reason is that the, the Greek word for ask, seek, and knock, it's all in the continuing tense. Meaning that that's the point, is that it's ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't pray once and then move on down the road. Right? That this is something that you pray until the Lord Answers that there is a persistence in prayer that we have. So we pray until the Lord gives us an answer and then, then we stop. But we are to be persistent in prayer. Right? We are also to pray expectantly. Notice how many times Jesus says we shall. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh Findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be open. Right? There is a, these are statements of certainty. The idea of certainty regarding answer of prayer, it carries on there in verse 8 that Jesus will hear and answer our prayer. What a great promise from the Lord that he hears and prays. So we should expect. Praying isn't talking to the sky, it's not throwing a wish at the universe. No, we can pray expectantly because our good God hears. And that leads us also to pray confidently. Right? What man is there of you? If a son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if we ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to them which ask Him? Right? So as an earthly dad, if my children... Asked for things they needed. I'm not going to ignore them. And I'm not going to give them things that would hurt them instead. Right? I, I, I'm not going to give them a stone and let them starve to death. I'm not going to give them a serpent that will bite them. I'm not going to do things that are bad for them. I'm going to do what's good. And if I, being sinful and fallen, if I'm going to do good for my kids, then how much more will our Heavenly Father do what is best for us? I mean, that is a... That's a great level of confidence there. We pray not to the big man upstairs, again, not to the universe, but to our Father who sees, who hears, who cares, and will do what is best for our lives. Now, with this, I want to point out something that I don't want to be a, a faith killer, a wet blanket. I hope it's not. But it's true. So we have to deal with it. This is not a blank check. This isn't saying, well, if I pray for God to do this, He's always going to do it when I want, the way I want, how I want. Now, God is not a genie. 
who exists to grant our every wish. These verses promise God will answer prayer and he does. They do not promise the answer is always yes. Because God answers prayers in, in one of three ways. Sometimes it is yes. Praise the Lord. Those are the great times, right? We pray it. God does it exactly how we pray it. How awesome is that? God heard my prayer and did something. But sometimes God answers not right now. Something we're praying for, God knows we're not ready for at this moment. Or sometimes God says no. Now, here's the thing. Not right now and no. For some people, they're going to say, well, that's a copy. But, but is it really? Is there anyone in your life who always says yes to everything you ask? Is there, are there people in your life that if you ask them to do something, you ask them to help you move a piano, they would say, well, I can't right now, but I will later. Or do they always drop everything they're doing and instantly come to do your bidding? Probably none of us have people in our lives like that. People always tell us, not right now. And we're okay with that from other people. Is there anybody in your life who never tells you no? Who everything you ask, they instantly do it exactly the way you want, when you want, how you want. Probably not. And we're okay with that. We're okay with saying no to other people, aren't we? I mean, if someone asks you to do something you don't want to do, do you feel free to say, no, I'm not going to do that? If you can say no to other people, why can't the God of heaven say no to you? And if He is our all-knowing God who gives us what is best, isn't His no what's best? Now, it may not seem like that, but I can think over my life. And over times, God answered no. Some of those are the best answers I ever received. When, when I was a little kid, I, I intended to join the army. When I was five years old. And when I joined the army, I intended to be an army ranger. That was all I joined to do. And when I finally got a slot to go to ranger school, I got knocked out of it by my platoon sergeant forcing me to do something else. And I prayed, oh God, because if I don't get this slot, there was just a whole big issue. It wouldn't happen in a normal time. So I'm praying, God, change his heart. And he didn't. And so I got out of the army deeply devastated that I did not achieve my goal being an army ranger with all I ever wanted to do. And a few months after getting out of the army, family from Arkansas moved to our church. And I met my wife. Had God answered my prayer, said yes to that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have a wife that I have. I wouldn't have the children I have. My life would not be anywhere near as good as it is. God's no in that time was the best answer there was. Even though it devastated me at the time. God's no is a legitimate answer. If He is omniscient. 
And if he is our father who knows what's best and does what is best. We have to accept no. Because again, if we will accept no from other people. Surely. Surely we will accept no from our God. I I need a volunteer, Luke and Corby and Connor. Thanks for volunteering, guys. Like, did you come help too? Let's hand these out. Make sure everybody gets one. And you get one too. I'm giving you pieces of paper so you can write down. Didn't put them up there. Um, I want you to write down three categories of things to pray for for this year. We're, we're praying for God to do things. So the categories pray for put some put a, a heading for personal, and you want at least two or three things. And these are things you want God to do in you, through you, or for you by the end of this year. Put down after that. Put down church. Things you you want and you're going to pray for, right? That's the key. You're not just wanting and go, boy, that'd be awesome. But you're going to pray for God to do these things in the church, for the church, or through the church by the end of the year. And then, a category for lost or uncommitted. Who would you like to see either saved or wholeheartedly committed to Christ by the end of the year? Now, so take a few minutes, fill this out. Again, you want at least two or three with each one. And once you have it, what you want to do is we're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to come to the altars and we're going to pray over these things now. But then you keep this, right? You keep it somewhere where you will pray for it regularly. I keep mine in my Bible journal. So every time I open my Bible, it is right there for me to pray for. Uh, But somewhere where you will keep it so that you will remember all throughout this year to pray for these things. Alright, so let's take the time and fill this out.